Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so while we go over recent developments in the public safety labor world. And I do have some pretty interesting cases to talk about this month. For example, what starts a statute of limitations running under a peace officer's Bill of Rights and whether or not paid union leave is legal in Texas. But I've got to say, all of the cases that I want to talk about completely pale in comparison to the main topic of this podcast. And that topic is the first entry, first application of, in any meaningful way, artificial intelligence in the public safety world. Now, you've all seen a lot of stories in the last few weeks about artificial intelligence and and you probably perhaps even interacted with some chatbot that's out there somewhere. Let me give you an overview and then let me talk about how AI is coming in to the public safety labor world in a way that is bluntly one of the scariest things that I've ever seen. So let's start with sort of a definition of terms. Uh, artificial intelligence. There are two kinds of artificial intelligence. There's what's known as narrow artificial intelligence, where a computer's resources are brought to bear on a single problem, usually, hence the word narrow. And then there's artificial general intelligence, or AGI, as it's usually called. Artificial general intelligence That's the truly alarming form of general intelligence that is being worked on right now in various places around the world. Why do I say genuinely alarming? Artificial general intelligence can do what our minds can do, and that is not work on a singular problem, uh, as would be the case with narrow AI, but bringing to bear on a problem or a set of problems any number of variables that were not necessarily intended by whoever crafted the program. In other words, an artificial general intelligence program truly can learn. And it's pretty easy to forecast that AGI is going to be able to learn at a rate much faster than human beings. And we, as of yet, have no guardrails imposed on AGI. We don't have any regulatory body saying, this is what you can do with it, this is what you can't do with it. We don't even have any industry standards suggesting that. Uh, And the result is some people, some people who are very smart, and not generally alarmist, are predicting that artificial general intelligence poses an actual threat to humanity. There's been a recent poll that got a lot of attention where uh, people in Silicon Valley, people with knowledge of the computer industry, were asked to evaluate the likely long-term impact of AGI. And roughly 10% of the respondents 
referred to AGI as an existential event. An existential event, what does that mean? It means an event that is going to determine the future of humanity, the existence of humanity. So the people who are developing this are taking it seriously. Well, we're just now seeing the first signs of artificial intelligence, and it's narrow AI so far with a footnote. It's narrow AI. We're just starting to see it come into a public view. It's been out there for a while, right? Uh, there's a the leading company in the area is probably OpenAI. OpenAI, which began as a nonprofit, uh, very quickly saw gold in them their hills and has spun off a for-profit company uh, into which Microsoft has invested about $11 billion. Uh, and OpenAI, that's the outfit that released what's referred to as GPT-3 in 2020. GPT-3 is a language model that basically tries to predict uh, based upon all of the information that's been given, what are the next words that are going to be used in a particular sequence? It's aimed at natural language exchange between the users of computers and the computer. Uh, OpenAI, uh, when it released GPT-3, was a little bit modest and very cautious about how it did so. But the fact is that OpenAI very clearly demonstrated the ability to generate improvised text. Uh, and that became something of a little bit of concern. Uh, we've started to see GPT-3 uh, come into full bloom in February of this year, maybe early March, uh, when all of a sudden, uh, OpenAI released a chatbot where we could actually communicate with GPT-3 using natural language. Uh, and the, the next development, which was uh, probably the most significant of them, is that in March of 2023, uh, OpenAI released GPT-4. GPT-4, the next iteration in the program, is incredibly more powerful than GPT-3. Uh, so, for example, uh, they, the folks at OpenAI and other AI researchers tend to give these programs standardized tests to see how they perform on, on these sorts of tests. Uh, and that's what happened with a comparison to uh, from GPT-3 to GPT-4. Uh, GPT-3, or 3.5, uh, which is kind of an interim iteration of the program, could pass the bar exam at the 10th percentile level. The 10th percentile level, that's not going to get you into the bar, even in some states where you might think anybody can get into the bar. 10th percentile is not going to do it. But that was GPT-3 and 3.5. GPT-4 passes the bar exam at the 90th percentile. 
Same thing is true with the law school aptitude test, the LSAT. Uh, GPT-3 passed at the 40% rate. Not going to get you in many law schools with that. GPT-4 at the 88% pass rate. Uh, and so and there's many more metrics that judge these two programs, but GPT-4, it is safe to say, is a quantum leap over where we were. And OpenAI isn't the only entity working on this, right? Google has a subsidiary known as DeepMind, uh, which has launched what's called the Palm AI program, uh, which means that AI is going to be built into Google's productivity suite. So Google Docs and Google Sheets and all of those things, uh, all of those are going to be AI driven, largely chatbot driven, uh, certainly within a matter of months, maybe within a matter of weeks. Uh, Microsoft is on the cusp of including GPT in its office suite, so Excel, PowerPoint, Word, and the like, and all the others are working on it. Amazon, Facebook, and more. They're all working on AI programs. This genie is thoroughly out of the bottle. AI is going to be with us. Now, let's get us into uh, the police world. Uh, how is AI being applied, or at least being pitched, in law enforcement? We don't see anything yet in uh, fire uh, protection, but it's coming, I can guarantee you. And, and you'll see that when I describe what's going on in some police departments. So the first real push, I think, came from an outfit known as Benchmark Analytics, LLC. Uh, and we'll uh, put a link to uh, Benchmark Analytics in the show notes so that you can take a look at this. Uh, but let's, let's listen to some of the pattern, the sales pattern that Benchmark Analytics gives. And I'm going to quote now for a little bit. The use of AI is expected to ease the implementation of early intervention systems in police departments, wherein officers who are likely to engage in misconduct are spotted promptly. Benchmark Analytics LLC developed a one-of-a-kind system called First Sign, which applies machine learning algorithms, think of that as really uh, pretty basic AI, that compare the present action of an officer by observing his or her past activities for any display of problematic behavior. Uh, Benchmark Analytics claims to be able to predict 85% of, quote, all major adverse investigations before they even happen, end quote. Uh, and a little bit more from Benchmark Analytics, though I think you're getting a flavor for this. Uh, Benchmark Analytics says, quote, the advantages of AI in early intervention systems allows for faster metric analysis. First sign, that's their proprietary name for their program again, 
analyzes arrest records, stop and service call information, use of force data, internal affairs reports, dispatch information, and other data to monitor officers' conduct. With this wealth of information, the program provides a holistic view of officer behavior and potential warning signs of misconduct. Here it comes. Each officer is given a risk score based upon system metrics and supervisors. Uh, and supervisors then use the risk scores to determine whether the officer needs counseling, training, or to be terminated. Does this sound a little bit like a movie that you may have once seen? You know, that one with Tom Cruise, Minority Report, where people are arrested before they commit crimes? Yeah, that's where we are. The future is now. Well, that's step one. What's step two? We've already seen it. It's an outfit out of Chicago called Trulio. Although it's not just Trulio, there are others doing this. But Trulio seems to be the most aggressive with respect to its marketing. And what Trulio says, and I'm translating here, it says to an agency, give us all of your body camera data. We will run it through our AI software, and it will analyze all of the video. What it's looking for are verbal cues, the language that officers use in interactions with members of the public, and then they look at the various activities in which officers have been involved and attempt to correlate language with conduct. Uh, so I'm going to turn now to uh, Trulio, to two people associated with Trulio. One of them is named Anthony Tassone, maybe pronouncing that wrong. Uh, he's one of the company's co-founders. And the other is a fellow named Art Acevedo. Uh, you may have heard of uh, Art Acevedo. He used to be a police chief in Texas. Uh, then he went to Florida, was terminated in Florida as a chief, went through a period when he was not holding any positions in law enforcement, uh, picked up with Trulio as a strategic advisor, uh, and he was in that role from July to December of last year, and then uh, disinvested in Trulio in order to take the job as the interim chief of the city of Aurora, Colorado. So Acevedo is a guy who's bounced around a bit uh, and has now ended up as the Aurora police chief. So let's talk about what uh, Tasson, the CEO, or one of the co-founders, and Acevedo say about Trulio. So Tasson, Trulio is a, quote, virtual sergeant, end quote, who's, who is reviewing every officer's every action. Quote, we're a solution to a huge problem in policing that they are spread thin and there is not a deep supervisory layer, good police, like what we're doing, said Tassone. 
Uh, Tassone goes on to say, over time, the department can use Trulio's program to see which officers display the highest level of professionalism and who is acting in a risky fashion. Over to Acevedo. Analysis will help with training and can be used by supervisors to help officers looking for areas of improvement. Acevedo compares Trulio to a sports team reviewing game film. Back to Tassone. Obviously, a call that ends in an arrest is going to be negative. But what if an officer has an overwhelming number of negative interactions, but a below average number of arrests? Is he or she going through something in their personal lives? Perhaps something as deeply personal as a divorce, or maybe the officer was shot last week. Maybe they need some time to cool down or to be coached by more seasoned officers. You get the drift of where this is going, right? We're going to try to predict which officers are going to mess up based upon their audio present on body cam videos and then we're going to take some action against those officers, whatever it might be, training, whatever it might be. So who would be interested in this as a product? Well, clearly, some police departments might. Acevedo's already signed up City of Aurora. Uh, that's not exactly a shock uh, to use Trulio's program. But might Trulio be marketing to somebody else? Well, maybe... Uh, my law partner, his name is Anil Karia. Anil does what I do. We, you know, 100% of our law firm life is devoted to representing public safety employees and public safety labor organizations. Anil got a marketing flyer from, of all people, Trulio. Just got it the other day. Who is it addressed to? Anil Karia. Police brutality attorney. Do you think police brutality attorney means somebody who defends police officers? Or maybe it means somebody who sues police officers. I think you may be saying what Trulio thinks to be a very important market. And that is the use of this software to aware to advise plaintiffs in litigation against law enforcement officers through a review of the body camera video uh, and help those plaintiffs develop a claim that because what a department did with a particular officer wasn't what was being suggested by Trulio's analysis uh, through its AI program, there should be some liability. We'll see. This is early. It's kind of tough to say. So what are the problems with all this beyond the fact that it's just kind of fundamentally scary and this is just the first iteration? This is going to get more and more and more intrusive. That's the only direction this can possibly go, right? Well, there, there are some problems. First of all, there's the problems of hallucinations. Hallucinations is the word that 
uh, people in, in Silicon Valley use to describe uh, what happens when an AI program makes stuff up. And in fact, they all so far make stuff up. Uh, GPT-4 is better at it, at better at not doing so than GPT-3, but it still makes a lot of stuff up. GPT-4 uh, is only 40% lower in terms of its number of hallucinations than GPT-3. Well, well, what sort of stuff do these programs make up? Well, I was uh, fooling around with GPT-3, uh, actually, uh, the other day, and I thought I'd test it a little bit. So I asked it a question, this question, pretty simple. Uh, how many police officers would Portland need to hire, I'm from Portland, would Portland need to hire to have the average number of police officers in this country? And GPT-3 did a wonderful job of coming up with an analysis of that. It looked to the FBI's data and it did a comparison of the average policing rate with populations among large cities and then generated the number of police officers that Portland would have to hire to be at the average. By the way, we'd have to double the number of police officers in Portland. So I thought, oh, wow, that's pretty interesting. And I could see that being useful in arbitration or negotiations, right? I mean, couldn't you see typing in uh, something like if, let's pick a city at random, if Chicago uh, followed the general pattern in the United States with respect to the assessed valuation per capita of real property and police wages, what would a Chicago police officer being paid? be paid? Well, that's not really any different than the question that I asked about staffing, right? So I start to think, hmm, this is kind of interesting. So my next question was, who is Will Aitchison? I thought I'd ask it about myself. Um, and I got back a very nice three paragraphs. Uh, and I learned some things about myself when I got the information back. What did I learn? I learned that I was one of the trial attorneys in the Rodney King case. Somehow or another, that seems to have escaped my memory. But um, nonetheless, uh, GPT thought I was. I also learned that I make f uh, very frequent appearances as a guest on national television shows, a guest specializing in police labor issues. Huh, that one slipped my mind as well. I'd love to be on Bill Maher's show, I'll admit that, but I ne actually never have had an appearance on national television. Those were hallucinations. That was nothing more than GPT following its model of trying to predict where language is going to go, uh, simply coming up with nonsense. Uh, now, one thing that's interesting about these hallucinations is at least the last time I've checked into it, which is a couple weeks ago, uh, and this stuff develops at lightning pace, but when I last checked into it, the people writing these programs aren't quite sure why hallucinations 
occur. Uh, and that should make everybody very nervous, particularly if your career is hanging in the balance, like it would be with the two applications of AI that I've already described. Okay, back to my Sunday afternoon fooling around with uh, chat GPT. Uh, what did I then do? Uh, once I saw my biography, I asked it to translate it into Italian. Boom! Translated into Italian right away. And then I asked it to uh, take my biography and transform it into sonnet form. You know, sonnets that uh, unusual structure of a poem that has, if I remember right, uh, three quatrains uh, and then a, uh, a couplet at the end. So it's a 14-line poem. Uh, and boom, there was a sonnet. Uh, GPT wrote a sonnet about me. Uh, not all of it was true, but it'd be nice if it was. Um, and all of those questions were answered in less time than it took me to type the questions themselves. This is an astonishing development in computing. And I don't think I'm being chicken little here saying, hold on to your hats. When this thing gets established, these programs get established in the public safety environment, uh, uh, things are going to fundamentally change. Okay, other problems. Well, another obvious one are the public records implications of these programs. These programs uh, need to be fed a lot of data, right? Uh, because the predictions that they develop uh, are dependent upon patterns of information that exist out there or raw data that exists out there. Uh, and uh, when those programs are on and consider that data, is that data that is being considered public records? Well, uh, if I was an employer, I'd be worried about that one a lot. And I'd be thinking, maybe we need to get down to the legislature and uh, figure out how we're going to handle these things with respect to a public records or freedom of information act. Uh, Trulio's answer is very unsatisfactory to me. Uh, Trulio says, hey, don't worry about that because we erase the underlying data uh, almost instantaneously. We're just interested in the predictions. Uh, I don't think if you're a public employer, you want to be contracting with somebody to erase data that might be a public record the moment it is created. So there's something very much to think about. And then the third thing, because this is a, a labor relations podcast, you might not know it from the first 30 minutes of this podcast, but because it is, we better be talking about bargaining here. Is the use of AI programs to impact the career of employees, is that something that might be a mandatory subject of bargaining? You betcha. 
And you betcha that labor boards around the country are going to be very quick to find that to be the case, particularly, but not only, if the data is used to call for the reassignment or, heaven forbid, the discipline of employees before employees have done anything wrong whatsoever. We've seen what may be the first eruption of bargaining on this issue in the country in two different places. Uh, one of them is in Seattle, and the other of them is in Rochester, New York. So in Seattle, uh, Trulio had been online for some time, and the Seattle Police Department didn't tell the unions that that was the case. The result, when it all became public, you see this headline, quote, Cops livid after Seattle Police Department spied on them with AI. And in February of this year, right around the time of that headline, the city of Seattle stopped it running its AI program. Now, I haven't been able to talk to the right people about that. My take on that is that's probably the union uh, asserting its bargaining rights with respect to AI in the city saying, oh, whoops, this may well be negotiable here. And that's what uh, the articles that are out there, that's kind of what they suggest uh, that happened. Uh, that certainly would be the natural thing to have happened. Uh, and in Rochester, you have the uh, Rochester Technology Institute that has been developing an AI program uh, based into body cameras. And it uh, somewhat quietly, but somewhat publicly, uh, all of a sudden the use of that development in the Rochester Police Department no longer became an issue. Uh, and uh, you can suspect that's the union, again, asserting its bargaining rights, and we just haven't seen it on a public basis yet. And then the last thing I want to say about the whole AI thing is I've just been talking about this in the context of labor relations and the employment world. Uh, there's a lot more to AI and public safety, right? Because Think of this. These are, or some of these programs are using body camera videos. Which way do body cameras point? Typically, they don't point at officers, right? They point at the public. Some of these programs use police reports and the like. Police reports document the activities of the public. If I were active in the ACLU right now, this would be one of the most important, maybe the most important issue that I was working on, is how these AI programs are going to interact with the various sources of information provided by law, law enforcement and fire protection agencies. There's cameras everywhere, right? Uh, cameras that can be used to feed a mountains and mountains of data to programs that are capable of analyzing that data. And here's, here's just a little 
taste on, on this. Uh, this is a uh, from a publication called Nature Human Behavior in June of 2022. We're going to put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, and here's what uh, the authors, uh, and th this is a scientific study. Here's what the authors have to say. And I'm just going to read this to you uh, as is, uh, without any translation, uh, just to give you a feel for how dense this scientific writing can sometimes be. Uh, quote, we introduce a stochastic, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, I was not a STEM major in college. We introduce a stochastic inference algorithm that forecasts crime by learning spatio-temporal dependencies from event reports with a mean area under the receiver operating characteristic curve of approximately 90% in Chicago for crimes predicted per week within approximately 1,000 feet. Such predictions enable us to study perturbations in crime patterns that suggest that the response to increased crime is biased by neighborhood socioeconomic status, draining policy resources from socioeconomically disadvantaged areas, as demonstrated in eight major U.S. cities. Uh, and the cities included, uh, for example, Chicago and Portland. Uh, so uh, what are they saying? Well, when this all hit the press in Los Angeles, uh, when there was a proposal that the Los Angeles Police Department use similar software, uh, there was a big protest. Uh, and a big protest by people who were generally could be thought to be uh, advocates of police reform. And here's how the LA Times ended up translating the Nature Human Behavior Study when it uh, was describing the protests. Quote, a group of social and data scientists developed a machine learning tool it hoped would better predict crime. The scientists say they succeeded, but their work also revealed inferior police protection in poorer neighborhoods in eight major U.S. cities. Well, that's still not a complete English language translation, so let me give it to you. When we went out there, and we looked at the different variables you could use to forecast crime, and we looked at police responses. You know what? We found that police respond less frequently to similar crime reports when those reports come from disadvantaged areas. In other words, we think or you could justify, based upon the data, you could justify a greater police response in socially and economically disadvantaged areas. Now, do you see why the protests happened? That's not exactly consistent with the defund movement, is it? In fact, it's precisely to the opposite of the defund movement. Uh, this is suggesting, look, 
we can better use societal resources by sending law enforcement officers to the place, places where there are the most crimes being committed. Um, so at any rate, that's just a little bit of another taste as to how AI can be used. Uh, what suggestions do I have? And I have this same suggestion for employers and for unions. Start talking about this right now. Uh, start bargaining over it. Employers, if you want to reserve your bargaining rights and say, let's just have a discussion, propose that to your unions. But I think it's critically important that employers and unions get on the same page here and get on the same page before this develops too much. Because if you can get agreement on the issue, it's going to be so much easier than if you have to pick up the pieces afterwards. And, and what sort of issues do you want to be talking about? You want to be talking about the use of this information to in any fashion impact the job rights of an employee, whether those job rights are the continued existence of the job, a particular assignment, a particular shift, a particular area of town, whatever it might be. You want to be resolving how this software can be used, if at all, under those sorts of circumstances. And you also need to be having a meaningful conversation about what the agency's position should be based upon the fact, as I've said, these body cameras and the ones that are the AI programs dependent upon body camera video, those body cameras are facing outward. And I think it's going to be really important for management and labor to be on the same page with respect to uh, what sorts of changes are going to be made in public safety agencies, how to handle the public records requests, and the like. So I am at once a little bit apologetic for taking as much time as I did on this topic. I am very, I'm deeply hopeful that I am exaggerating what the problem may be, but I don't think so. And I think we need to be talking about all this right now. Okay, let's uh, get into the cases now. I want to start with a Court of Appeals decision out of uh, Illinois. It involves the city of Springfield, Illinois. And it deals with the public policy doctrine. Uh, just by way of background, arbitrators' opinions are uh, generally thought to be final and binding. There is an exception to that if the arbitrator's opinion violates public policy. There have been lots of debates about how you determine public policy. Uh, strange that there have been debates because the U.S. Supreme Court has on two occasions uh, very specifically described the public policy rule. Uh, but then you have some states, some state courts, Washington, for example, uh, that have struck off on their own. Uh, and instead of giving great deference to arbitrators' opinions, have decided they want to uh, basically decide matters of fact and matters of law on their own without deferring to an arbitrator. So the public policy is a, an argument that's alive and well. 
And one of the places that the public policy exception to the finality of arbitration awards gets discussed a lot is in Illinois. And the reason has been that there have been, from various courts in Illinois, a variety of contradictory court opinions on what the public policy doctrine actually means. We've had some police cases, we've had some fire cases where uh, one court will overturn an arbitrator's opinion and another court looking at virtually identical facts will say, uh-uh, public policy doctrine doesn't apply, we're going to uphold the arbitrator's opinion. Well, we have the latest iteration from an Illinois court on the public policy doctrine that came down, uh, and hopefully it puts the issue somewhat to bed. You know, we can only hope for consistency. So as I mentioned, this is a case uh, that comes out of Springfield, Illinois. It's a police case, and it involves basically two police officers, James Fox, and Lawrence Williams. Uh, they're both patrol officers, and they were using a messaging app while they were on patrol. Uh, Williams is black. I don't think the opinion tells us what race Fox is, but we know Williams is black. Uh, and they were using their mobile data computer, the MDCs, uh, in addition to texting each other over their cell phones. And here's the, the key exchange. Fox, who's the guy who we don't know the race of, says, um, uh, quote, you're making me feel like 800s, that refers to a patrol district, you're making me feel like 800s house N-word. William says, I don't even know what that means. Fox, by the way, actually used the word. So uh, when William says, I don't even know what that means, Fox, trying to be helpful, uh, sends William a screenshot of the term house and word as defined by urbandictionary.com. Williams doesn't respond uh, at the end uh, of the shift, though. Uh, Williams approaches Fox and says, Why'd you do this? And why'd you send me this message? Fox apologizes, then later sends another apology by text message saying, uh, my bad man, didn't think you'd take it that way. We've had banter like this in the past, and I didn't think it was that serious. Uh, and in the face of that uh, half apology, quarter apology, I'm not sure what, uh, Williams files an IA complaint against Fox. The department fires Fox. Uh, and uh, Fox's union, Police Protective and Benevolent Association of Illinois, challenges the termination and arbitration. Arbitrator reduces the termination to a 13-month suspension, uh, citing Fox's long, perfect work record and his immediate apology to Williams. And the city then challenges the arbitrator's decision in court on the grounds that it violates public policy. And the Court of Appeals says, uh, look, let's get this public policy doctrine thing. Let's, let's get this very well described. Uh, and the court says, look, there, there is an exception to uh, the notion that arbitration decisions are 
uh, vinyl and binding. There is an exception, a public policy exception, and we use a two-step process. First of all, we look at whether there's a well-defined and dominant public policy that can be identified. And to help us in looking for public policy, uh, we'll look for uh, constitutional provisions and statutes and maybe even court decisions. Uh, but what we don't do is we don't identify a public policy, quote, based on general considerations of supposed public interests or mere value judgments that implicitly forbid the employee's reinstatement, end quote. Uh, and the court then says, uh, step two, that was that first step, we look for a public policy. Uh, the second step is to determine whether the award of the arbitrator violates public policy. And the court says here, you know, there's some very clear public policies that are implicated by this case. Uh, there's policy against racial discrimination, bias, and harassment. Uh, there's a strong public policy in favor of providing effective law enforcement. But that's not the real question here. The real question is whether the arbitrator's award of reinstatement with that 13-month suspension violates public policy. And the court says, I love this phrase, uh, quote, the irreducible crux of the position taken by the city is that the only adequate discipline for a single utterance of the N-word is termination. And the court says, that's not the public policy in Illinois or any place else that we know of. Court looks to uh, what's called the Illinois Human Rights Act, which is kind of the equivalent of the civil, Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964. And the court says the Human Rights Act only requires an employer with knowledge of the offending conduct to take reasonable corrective actions. Quote, the city took corrective action, and ultimately that action resulted in a 13-month unpaid suspension. It can hardly be said that the city let the incident pass without taking reasonable corrective measures. So the court emphasizes in these public policy cases, you know, you look at, you, you look at the employee's conduct, to see whether or not that conduct violates some general public policy. That's pretty much easy to say in many of these cases. Um, but the real question is whether the arbitrator's remedy violates public policy. And the only way it does, says the court, is if we can identify a statute, a constitutional provision, or something in one of our cases that says the only permissible discipline for this type of offense is termination, period, end of issue, no consideration of mitigating circumstances, no consideration of due process, you gotta fire this person. And of course, those sorts of statements of public policy are completely rare, right? And that's what the message is from the court. 
we're not going to be overturning many arbitration opinions. You bargain for final and binding arbitration as the last step in the appeal process. You bargain for that uh, in lieu of being able to go to court or being able to go to a civil service commission. You're stuck with that. That's your contract. We enforce contracts. We are courts. Well, I'm only going to have time for one more case. I went on a little bit about AI there, didn't I? Um, but I, I do want to talk about a case that comes out of the uh, Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department and talk about uh, privacy rights with respect to uh, public employee information, in this case, uh, police officer information. Um, because there's some... Uh, not so much contradictory law uh, out there as there is not very well-known law on this issue. So what's going on here? Well, this, uh, this is another body cam case. Uh, I'll call it Metro, the Metropolitan Police Department, which is Washington, D.C.'s police department. Uh, it, Metro has a labor contract with the Fraternal Order of Police, Metropolitan Police Department Labor Committee, that's a mouthful, um, and uh, under the collective bargaining agreement, uh, officers are, uh, or the, the city's been able to maintain a body camera program. Uh, over the course of 2014, roughly to 2020, uh, the District of Columbia City Council toyed with any one of a number of police reform uh, ordinances passing uh, many of them, including basically ending binding arbitration of discipline in uh, D.C. Well, one of these was an Emergency Act passed in 2020. What this Emergency Act did was to require the mayor to, and I'm going to quote now, publicly release the names and body-worn camera recordings of all officers who committed the officer-involved death or serious use of force within five business days after an officer-involved death or the serious use of force. You can see the uh, kind of the political approach taken by the council there when it used the word committed, but uh, you know, these were the heady days for uh, in 2020, right? Uh, so the mayor complies with the Emergency Act. The FOP then sues, saying the Emergency Act violates the due process and privacy rights of the FOP's members. And uh, the real issue, uh, more so than uh, due process, is the issue of the privacy rights. What privacy rights is the FOP alleging uh, as the basis for its request for a temporary restraining order. Uh, the quote from the FOP's argument is that Metro officers have a cognizable privacy interest in the non-disclosure of their names and other identifying information. And the court, in this case, it is the federal court for uh, the District of Columbia, the Federal Appeals Court, uh, ends up saying there's no privacy rights that are at issue here. Uh, the court says, quote, we are not aware 
that any court has ever held that police officers have a fundamental right to the privacy about their involvement while on duty and while in contact with the public they serve in a shooting or other serious use of force. Moreover, there is quite to the contrary a growing consensus of circuit courts, that's federal courts of appeal, holding that there's a First Amendment right to record police activity in public subject to reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions that negates officers' reasonable expectation of privacy in their interactions with the public. And this is incompatible with the fundamental informational privacy right that the FOP is arguing for. The court points to other things as well, that uh, Metro officers for a long time have been required to wear a nameplate and have a badge with numbers and they're not allowed to alter or cover the identifying information uh, at all. The court also points to the fact that long before the release of names was mandatory, uh, the mayor had discretionary authority to release videos and the names uh, and did so from time to time. And that, in the words of the court, uh, quote, again, undermines the member's reasonable expectation of privacy. And the court's bottom line is, quote, the right to decide how to treat information about public policy activities belongs to the government and is not a right belonging to individual officers, much less a fundamental right of FOP members. Now, let me put a postscript on this one because we've had something happen in the Los Angeles Police Department since this case was decided. And what happened was that LAPD, and we'll put a link in the show notes to a, an article about this, uh, LAPD accidentally released the names and photographs of what appears to be a substantial portion, maybe close to all, of its officers. And it, it just released these accidentally uh, under the auspices of litigation. That included officers who have been recently and currently are in undercover assignments. You can rest assured that officers in LAPD are going to be, are right now, exploring their legal options with respect to the release of that sort of information, particularly officers in undercover assignments. And there is some law on the issue of undercover assignments uh, that comes out quite differently than the general rule that we saw in the Metro case. General rule, of course, is you're doing law enforcement in public. Uh, you don't have any privacy rights with respect to your name or your image. Uh, uh, and, but there is a very narrow exception for officers in a undercover assignment. And you can see this described, and it's an older case now. It comes from the Federal Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals called Kallstrom, K-A-L-L-S-T-R-O-M, versus City of Columbus. We'll put it in the show notes. But the court ends up uh, concluding that because of the particular risk to officers in an undercover assignment, the release of their personal 
information, including their pictures and their addresses and the like, the release of that information would violate their privacy rights. So that seems to be the state of play right now for everybody other than someone who is an undercover officer. No privacy rights when you're on the job with respect to your name or your photograph. Uh, for undercover officers, a different story. Okay, that's it. I've reached the end of my allotted time. I want to thank you for joining me for this April edition of First Thursday. Our next seminar coming up is going to be in Las Vegas in the first full week in June. We're going to have our seminar on the rights of law enforcement officers. Uh, hope to see you there. Uh, the last few seminars that we've had have all been just wonderful events in terms of uh, people coming from all over the country and interactions with the speakers and the like. Uh, I expect no less from our seminar in June. So with that, uh, have a great spring. And this is Will Aitchison signing off.